0: Welcome to ON AIR, a podcast from the AIR community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet, and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of ON AIR.
1: Welcome to the episode number 12 of ON AIR, the podcast of the AIR community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today, we will discuss T-cell receptor mimetic antibodies and immunoinformatics in general with Charlotte Dean from the University of Oxford. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. Charlotte is a professor of structural bioinformatics at the Department of Statistics and heads the Oxford Protein Informatics Group in Oxford. This podcast is hosted by me, Ching.
0: And me, I am Oleg Stoutable. Hello, everybody, and welcome. So, Charlotte, one question that we always ask uh, our guests is, um, how do you get into immune receptors in the first place? What is that so fascinating with these things?
2: So I was already an academic working in the area of kind of protein structure, protein sequences, all of those kinds of things, mostly protein structure. Really had an interest in that. And I had done my PhD um, with another guy who was there doing a PhD at the same time. It's called G.A. And he, at that point in time, was working for um, UCB. And we met at a conference. And he started asking me some questions about antibodies. Now, I knew what they were. And I was not totally ignorant. But it is quite literally that is how I got into them. Because he asked me some questions that I was like, Mm, well, I don't know and so they went to look and read because that's what you do when somebody asks you an interesting question and from there I started to build up like a you know a lot of understanding of them but also a lot of interest in the fact that they were a really interesting group of proteins to me the kind of I mean immunology I genuinely I don't understand it but then I also don't think anyone does fully I understand bits and then the structures of antibodies are fascinating and, you know, TCRs and nanobodies, the way that they can bind to many different things but also actually they're really similar to each other and it makes them a fascinating case study for someone like me who really likes thinking about protein structure and binding and interactions because you both kind of have this lots of data, sounds really simple, actually really complicated relationship. So It's kind of how it built but I blame GA for all of
0: it, just to be clear. <laughs> so you're Background obviously is not immunology, You're, it's all oh, structural biology. So what got you into structural biology then in the first place?
2: So I did, and my undergraduate degree was in chemistry, um, and I very quickly became aware that what I was actually good at was working on computers, not not in a wet lab. I, there were too many stories there, but basically, trust me, computer was a better place for me, and I enjoyed it a lot more. And really what happened was in my undergrad in your kind of fourth year, so I did my undergrad at Oxford, your fourth year is a year-long project. And I looked at the projects that were available and there was one which was basically about proteins and protein structure. And I thought it sounded interesting. And so that's the one I did. And that's really where it all began. It was a, a topic that I did not know a great deal about before that. But the minute I started doing it, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed kind of the... I I really enjoy the mathematics and computation of it. That's really what my group majors on. That's where I work. But I also, I I love, I think proteins are beautiful. I think antibodies are amazing. They're beautiful things to look at, you know. And then the kind of, the development of algorithms where you have to think about the three-dimensionality of them, I found exciting. And then the, how that connects to how the entire biological system works. So it built from there. I then went on to do a PhD very specifically in the area of kind of computational methods for sort of protein structure work, and just kept going really, just kept going and going.
1: While I was looking into uh, all of your publications, I came across these wonderful tools and databases that you've created. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the, is it the sad dab, the as well? And now I'm forgetting all the different acronyms, but yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, really, all of the databases in my group, I think it's important to sort of set this out, arose from the um, the same kind of frustration that I think everyone has. If you are somebody who works computationally on this or, or even, you know, any type of this, one of the biggest things is you're aware there's a large amount of data out there that could help you. But actually, it's all in a bit of a mess because it comes from different groups. It's publicly available, but it comes from different groups. It's not consistent. You can't kind of club it all together. You can't work out what you can actually do with it. And the more we're moving into this kind of machine learning age, the more important having the data collated, consistent, and easily accessible is. So uh, It feels like an age ago. We published it in 2014. The first of our databases was SabDAB. And the idea there was this very simple thing, which was if you went to the PDB and you typed in the word antibody, you didn't get the, and all the antibody structures in the PDB. You got some random collection of some antibodies, some other stuff, and loads of them were missing. So we thought, well, we should be able to do that. So we created this fully automated pipeline for collecting those structures because we wanted to be able to use that data. It now has about, I think, 8,000 antibody structures in it. It's fully automated updating collection. It also contains nanobodies. So there's about just over 1,000 nanobodies in there, 1,200, something like that. And it doesn't just collect them, it curates and presents the data consistently. So if you want to find out which of the antibody chains are in contact with the antigen, if you want them numbered with a numbering scheme, you can have all of that from that database. And all our other databases kind of come from that same kind of frustration. So another database we have is OAS. That's the observed antibody space that has, I think about two and a half billion antibody sequences in it. And once again, this is publicly available data, I think with sort of over 80 different repertoires that have been sequenced here. But what we have done is taken that data and sorted, cleaned, annotated, translated and numbered it. So it's there for use. And then another one of our databases is TheraSabDab. And this was a similar kind of thing as SabDab. We wanted to have a database of the immunotherapeutic variable domains. Actually, once again, quite hard to do because most of the information on them comes out in PDFs, which means you can go read about it. But if you actually want the whole set and to know how they relate to everything else, it's very hard. So that's got just over, I think it's about 850 therapeutics in it now. And it's a collection of all of those. But we connect it back up to our other data sets. So we connect it to SabDAB so you can see if these things have a structural representative or you need to model it or how close a structure is available to it and to all the other information we have. We also have a database of TCRs. So like SabDAB is for antibodies and nanobodies, we have STCRDAB, which is for the TCRs. Exactly the same idea. And then the most kind of recent addition to our set was something we built starting in 2020. And it was really because my group wanted to be able to do something useful during the pandemic. I think everybody felt like that. If you work in this area, it was like, how can I be useful? And one of the things that we're good at is building databases. So we created something called CovabDAB. And I think I couldn't tell you exactly. It's probably about, it's got well over 10,000 entries in it, but it's got all of the antibodies on nanobodies which have been proven to bind to different parts of SARS-CoV-2 so and where they bind and all the sequences and all the available metadata to allow people to do that kind of examination as well. So yeah, and we've got more databases coming because as I say, I think it's a really important part of what we need as a community is really clean, consistent data that we can build off to do everything else we do. And since we're building it for ourselves, we put it out there so everyone else can work with it too.
1: So these are curated databases. In, in, and is it difficult to, I guess, harmonize all the different studies or inputs?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we every time we build one of these, what we're trying to build is something that's completely automated in it's updating. Yep, um, and SabDAB is fully automatic. But by fully automatic, what that means is it has an internal emailing system that emails us when it gets confused about something it's tried to get down from the PDB. But also, and if anyone's listening to this who uses Sabdab or looks at it, if you find a mistake, tell us because it contains mistakes, all of these do. Um, So we really want to hear when people are using them and, you know, there are errors and we're really happy to collect them. But we're trying to make these as much as possible automatic Because otherwise, you know, this is an academic group building these. They will die if they're not relatively automatic because I can't, you know, the funding to have software engineers sitting there constantly to keep these perfect just doesn't exist in an academic sense. So that's, it's important to me to make them as automatic as possible, but also to be responsive to try and keep them as good as we can.
0: I was wondering about model antigens. So is this a problem in these databases?
2: So these databases, all of them have biases within them. That's part of why to build the databases is because if you build them and you have as much of the data as possible, you can then select out from it things like a a non-redundant set to try and remove the biases, but they are massively biased. I mean, I think, you know, the STCR DAB, the TCR one, is probably more biased than many of the others because also it has much less data. I think we've got, I don't know, 600-odd structures in that one. Um, whereas, like I said, you've got about 8,000 in the antibody one. So you've clearly got more of that going on and everywhere there's a bias because people are working on particular areas, but that's, if you collate the data, at least you can see the bias (laughs) is where I start from. It doesn't solve it completely, but you can see it. So then you can start to ask questions about what that means for what you can and can't do with the data as you go forwards. I guess, uh,
1: changing topics real quick. Uh, Speaking of T cell receptors, uh, you recently have a uh, frontier immunology publication about uh, T cell receptor mimetic antibodies. Um, It's a pretty, although I guess to most people, it's probably new, but I guess historically, they've been around for a while. Could you give us an overview of what they are and and what makes them so important or exciting?
2: I mean, in very simple terms, it's, could I make an antibody that pretends to be a TCR? Um, and obviously, in general, our antibodies in our body are doing the exact opposite of that. In the sense that they don't want to bind to the binding sites of TCRs because that would be self recognition, and this would be very bad. Um, so, it, what we want it to do is bind to the peptide MHC or I mean, it depends what peptide HLA complex. Yep. So, and. Just to be clear here, when I think about these, we are thinking about things that actually bind to that kind of peptide MHC bit, not just somewhere randomly on the, the MHC, because you you do have antibodies who do that, and they're related to things like organ rejection and stuff like that. So this is a different kind of thing. This is I'm going to do an impersonation of how a TCR binds with an antibody. And the reason people are excited about them is because it's a way to look inside the cell. So What an MHC or depends on you call it MHC or an HLA, but what they're doing is they're presenting peptides from things that are inside the cell on the outside of the cell. So that means I've got an extracellular signal of what's happening inside a cell, and if I can recognise that, that means I can actually use that for many, many diseases. The obvious disease that people are a bit excited for this is kind of bespoke antigens for cancer cells. Um, So it's this idea of you can actually think about doing that using this kind of technology and this way of thinking about it.
1: I know, at least clinically, there's uh, soluble TCRs um, out there sort of against these uh, anti-tumor associated antigens. Uh, What do you think is, I guess, the differentiation of the TCR mimetics versus just a soluble TCR?
2: I don't, I mean, part of this is the kind of, if you think about the genetic background of TCRs and antibodies, you've got a very similar molecule here. But what we also know is that TCRs in their kind of natural state, they are not very high affinity in their monovalent binding so making them high affinity or high enough affinity as a soluble TCR is already a challenge because that's not their natural state is much lower affinity than that whereas antibodies that's where they go you know you do display libraries of antibodies naturally th- that high affinity the other thing we know about TCRs is they are relatively non specific most TCRs recognize a very large number of peptide MHC complexes so when you want to turn them into a drug you've got to overcome both of those challenges, whereas antibodies are, are high affinity on average, you can, or certainly you can make them high affinity and they tend to be specific. But of course, now your challenge is that peptide MHC is not the natural kind of target. And in fact, might be a, an area where antibodies don't normally head for. So you're going to have to think about how you push them into that space. So that's really, I think there are advantages of doing this problem in both ways. But the reason people are thinking about these TCR mimetics, I think, are really around that kind of affinity and specificity that antibodies can achieve.
0: How do you get antibodies to look for uh, peptides in an MHC?
2: So the general way people think about doing that, and this is... it why it's actually quite challenging and when people first started doing this it it was very challenging is of course you do a kind of standard library screen so you have the complex you want it to hit you throw in a load of antibodies but of course then they don't bind where you want them to bind okay and so there is a level of kind of trying to work out your specificity here to ensure that they are binding and that the peptide is part of that binding because if it just binds to the MHC it's useless. There's a sort of slightly more complicated bit there as well, which is you also don't want it, you have to think, do you just want it to bind to the peptide itself? Or is it the peptide MOC? Because that it's, is its kind of context that it would bind in. And but if it just bound to the peptide, that might not work either, because it might not be a large enough binding site for it to be specific, and it might have other factors. And these peptides are only nine. So, you know, if you don't hit all nine residues which you won't you 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 have all sorts of other issues so the skill here is really in getting something that binds to the site that you are interested in with an antibody and that i think a lot of people now are thinking about changing the way they do their library design at the beginning to ensure that it contains things which are likely to go for that kind of target um and that kind of way of doing it
0: do i understand this then correctly that the target or the so the binding site for an antibody would be part peptide, part MHC, or just the peptide?
2: Yeah, most people have gone for that part peptide, part MHC as the binding site. Um, And it's, it's an interesting question about exactly what you should go for. I mean, partly because, well, one of the reasons that's an interesting question is related to how you can turn these into therapeutics. So we all have very different kind of... HLAs, MHCs. Yep. And so if I make it very specific for one of those, I may not have a very large target audience for my medicine. And also if I go even go further down the route that it's specific for the peptide as well, and we also all have different mutations that may be associated, say, with cancer. So now it becomes a very personalized medicine alongside that. There are people trying to think of ways of getting around that problem. So That's, I think, is the people have sort of said the optimal way of doing this is to bind the peptide and the MHC because you want the context and you want that peptide so you know you've got the right thing. But as I've said, that causes other issues. So one way of getting around that is having small molecules that target peptide and then antibodies that target the small molecule plus the peptide in that orientation. Because it mustn't just target small molecule; it will just eat up the small molecule. But that allows you to do this kind of, you know, larger scale docking, or know that you need that peptide even if you don't have the same H- same Hc. There's a few papers where people have been successfully doing this kind of thing. So I think it's kind of thinking about it that way. That kind of idea of it. There is a big challenge here about it's a magnificently possible personalized medicine. But of course, if it's too personalized, it becomes a very expensive medicine, which adds a, a, another dimension as to what you really want to do with
0: it. So adding these small molecules will remove the dependency on the MHC then?
2: Yeah, that's I think one of the big plans there is to see if that's the the kind of thing that they can do is remove that dependency. So you can have that kind of differentiation and you can control things more. But that's, I mean, I, I've never done any work on that. It's just that people have published on that. And I think it's a, a really interesting development in the field. Going back to
1: a, a topic, your a point you were making about the docking of these TCRs and TCR uh, mimetic antibodies to the peptide MHC. In your uh, publication, you were talking about how the differences between how right a TCR versus a TCR mimetic engages. Could you speak a bit about that and sort of what was interesting that you observed?
2: Yeah, I, I think, well, the first thing I should say that it really is observations in the paper. So um, I, I'd love to say we knew an answer here, but we only have 10 independent structural examples of TCR mimetics. We have a much larger number of TCRs but only 10 of those. And because of where this work is done, it wasn't somewhere where we could go and get some sequence examples and model them. There is no sequence data. There are 10 independent examples out there with structural information. And I think the way we started thinking about this was, well, TCRs and antibodies are really like one another. So it's kind of going to be similar, isn't it? You know, they've got, if you think about the genetic background, the way they're built, you know, there's the two chains, the, v, the, the heavy chain and the light chain and the beta chain and the alpha chain that's what this is going to be like. And I think one of my postdocs, Matt Raybold, put this really well. It's like, they're actually two different Lego kits. So they don't actually behave in exactly the same way. It's like you've got two different sorts of Lego. So of course, they don't plug quite like you think they're going to. So the things that we saw was that you can see big differences between tcr mimetics well, you can see obvious differences between tcr mimetics and antibodies for example it's a much more concentrated set of kind of cdr lengths you see but maybe that's just because you've got this nice kind of flat binding surface that you're trying to go for and anything that bound to that kind of surface would be constrained to those loop lengths but then if i do the comparison to the tcrs it appears that you know the antibodies can orientate in a very similar way over the binding interface to those which we see with tcrs but they can also do it very differently you can see both but the loops that they use to do the binding are just completely different and this is really where the lego set comes in it's not like you know the heavy the, the heavy chain i don't know cdr3 and the beta cdr3 they're very important for this and they do this and we see that in both what you see is just it's just different the overall shape of the complex looks similar, but the actual individual interactions from the CDRs, either from the TCR or from the antibody, are very different. And I think that you know one way to say that is if you think about the genetic background, we would all, because we'd go, well, we know what genetic background is and how these things are built the beta chain of TCRs should relate to the heavy chain of antibodies because they're the ones which have the VDJ recombination, the light chain and the alpha chain don't, right? If we look at how these things, TCR mimetics, structurally engage, sometimes you would say that is what's occurring and sometimes it's flipped. So the light chain is behaving like the TCR beta chain. Now, that to me is kind of an indication of what I mean by the Lego being different, as in Genetically, I would have said, "Well, absolutely, it has to be like that." But in reality, not at all. There, that relationship doesn't exist. And so, I think it's it's like the global properties are similar, but the exact properties within are very, very different indeed. And I think that's kind of it. What made it interesting to examine these, and I think as we get more data, we will become more interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, ten antibodies is, is is a small data set, but it's also interesting. It's hard to ignore <laughs> the the convergence. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And it was interesting to us because, you know, there were only, I think, three years ago, there were four of them. Mm -hmm. So the number is going up where, you know, when there were four, it was like, I don't really know what that means. Now, there are actually 11 structures, but only 10 kind of independent ones. So you're starting to be able to see that the patterns and and ideas that are coming.
1: And of the 10, you mentioned uh, some of them also approach the peptide MHC differently, sort of in a diagonal manner. Is that the majority
2: yeah. or, or a unique subset? Um, the problem is that it. I'm just gonna say that some okay. do this because I think it doesn't really matter if it's the majority out of the 10. So we, we see that some of them follow what is called the kind of diagonal binding mode, which is similar to TCRs. But as I said, even if they are doing that, they might have flipped the chains. So in my head, they're back to front. Okay. So it's diagonally approaching, so it looks like a TCR, but then where I would have put the heavy chain is where I the see, light I chain see. is. That's what you mean, okay. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, you know, it's it's that idea of globally you look at it and go, oh yeah, and then you look at the detail and go, oh no, <laughs> that's be Got it.
0: I was wondering one thing with the so off target If you know anything about this of these uh, mimetic antibodies, so what would that, what could that be?
2: Um. <laughs> well, in the off targets, I mean, most of this. Um, it's been done in the oncology setting. That's where people have been exploring this. So actually it's effectively, it could be, if you like, the wild type is <laughs> your off target. So it's the the unmutated peptide in some way or something similar to that. And because it's NINMA in the binding site, it, it's likely that there are others. Because if you think about this, if, if it's a NINMA peptide that's doing the difference, because if you're, I know you're binding to the MHC as well, but that can present many, many different peptides. Um, so there's a 9 peptide in there. You've got a small number of those side chains that are actually facing to the surface. Not all nine side chains point in the same direction. Usually it's like one up, one down. So we might have three or four that we can play with here. So that's actually a very small number of different contact points. So you have to be very specific if you're only going to hit that. And also, we know that these peptides are held in a relatively small number of conformations. It doesn't appear that you know they can be they're being held between these two alpha helices in the MHC, and so there there are there isn't only one conformation; it's relatively small. So it would be surprising if there weren't other things that were very very similar, so making specificity very difficult. But I think the important thing about off targets um, is that. Not so much whether there are off targets that exist, because I suspect for most of these, there really are and there always will be. Um, and perhaps even, not even how strong the binding is to those off targets. What matters is how prevalent those off targets are. Because if they're really, really common, even if you only bind them very weakly, it's going to do masses of damage because of the way the system works and what we're what we're what we're attaching here so it appears to be that that's the important thing is if you're developing these yes we have to think about off targets but what we're thinking about are anything which is we need to we need to try and ensure it doesn't bind to anything that might be common in the system because that is what will do the damage um, rather than kind of oh it binds very tightly to another thing well if that thing is very rare yeah, it's bad but it's nowhere near as bad as weak binding to something that's very common in the system
1: Another paper I found when I was looking through your publications was uh, your analysis of or and development of the therapeutic structural antibody database um, and and just a broad um, comparison of the sequence overlaps of these therapeutic antibodies with um, naturally occurring antibodies. Uh, and I found it really interesting how the the differences that you observe, which is like the fully humanized versus the chimeric versus the um, uh, humanized. Uh, and so do you think there's that's part of uh, sort of an anomaly of how these antibodies were made or or more of of the screening process or, or uh, some other hypotheses like why do you why do you see these different differences?
2: Do you mean in terms of overlap with observed natural antibodies or correct yeah well i think it's most of that Well, first part of that is i was really shocked when we did that first study so we did the first study on that ages ago and we had about 240, 242 i think therapeutics is what we searched for and observed antibody space our sequence space only had half a billion sequences in it at that point and 54 of those 242 had a perfect CDRH3 match in the natural antibody database. I always remember this number because I went, I made the the postdoc in my group go back and check it like four times. He didn't like me very much by the end of this. But because if you just do a rough calculation in your head, there are, depends who estimates it, but 10 to the 10 to 10 to the 14 are good estimates of the, the natural antibody space, all right? I've got half a billion. That's a drop in the ocean. Speaking as a mathematician, if I took 242 random sequences and asked whether I'd get any matches in half a billion in that size space, the answer is zero. If I then put on top of that that those 242 are meant to be um, highly engineered, the answer becomes really zero. But it was zero before that. It's zero just mathematically speaking. Chances of there being a match are incredibly low. So I find it really interesting that those matches exist. Because it suggests that the antibody repertoire is either not as large as we think it is, um, which might be one answer to this, or it is as large as we think it is, but most of it is not used most of the time, is another way of thinking about it, that our careful engineering is also driving us towards natural things, <laughs> which I quite like. So, so, what, what are you going to make? I'm just going to make a human antibody. Yeah, one that's in that person over there. It's a very expensive drug. Um And so I think that's kind of where I started from in that. And then the overlaps that we observed, I think, are really related. It is also related to where these things come from. The majority of the data we have in observed antibody space is human, and then the next largest is mouse. So if something comes from a background that's very different from that, they will have a different impact, if you see what I mean it will it will play out differently so i guess that's where it comes from in my head it's kind of i wasn't that surprised by the difference between human humanized that's kind of what i was expecting what i was surprised was that they overlapped at all i was expecting the answer uh, literally this was one of those things where i said we should do this expecting the answer to be nothing happens and instead it, it gave an answer that i think tells us a lot about um what antibody space is like, doesn't answer the question, but gives us a lot to think about in terms of what that sequence space is like and how it actually operates.
1: Okay, so if, if I'm understanding correctly, you're right, like, I'm looking at the figure that has the heavy chain sequence identity between the different antibody types and and whether they were fully human or humanized. Um, and humanized. Yeah. And so the fully human has, you know, 80 to Ninety-eight percent overlap sequence identity versus humanized has a bit lower, around you know seventy-five to ninety. So you're saying that that to you is still surprising, or that they that yeah. they have or is that equivalent, or is that different? I enough?
2: think it, it it's surprising to me that the the overlap is as high as it is at all. I mean, as I say in the paper, we go through the mathematical calculation of what would you expect, and the answer is none. I mean, very low numbers, but the kind of, once you're in the kind of 70%, I mean, every therapeutic antibody, I think we did this recently. I think now every therapeutic antibody, we can match its chain and it's about 80% sequence identity to something in OAS. Yeah. But I would say that's just because antibodies are that similar.
1: And that's just the CDR3 or is that the...
2: No, that's the the whole chain.
1: Oh, Oh, okay.
2: But that's a kind of... To me, that's, that's unsurprising because antibodies are just that similar. And we're now, I mean, two and a half billion is still a small sample. What's more important in those numbers are the specific parts which are involved in binding because the overall framework is going to be similar. You know, we, we want that to stay the same. So it is. So it's probably similar to something that's in the database. We, we, we know enough now to know that that's what we're trying to do. But it's the, the similarity of the CDRs that I think is the interesting part there are how similar are they and, you know, are we actually making novel, residues in those to make novel binders Um, and you know obviously we are to a certain extent but I think we what's available in the natural repertoire is much more powerful than perhaps we thought it was Mm -hmm. for these problems.
1: Yeah I guess the 80% homology of the full chain isn't too surprising to me but the 54 exact CDR3 matches that's that yeah that's pretty yeah. surprising to me in terms of um uh did you did you happen to do the analysis of within that uh two billion um natural antibody repertoire like what is that what are the frequencies of those cdr3s
2: so i can't tell you for the 2.4 billion because this we did oh, right, this work so when it was much smaller okay. we, we've done some work since then but i can't remember the numbers but there were several where we had we matched it from more than one repertoire. I can't remember the number, but there were several of them we found more than once. So it wasn't an odd chance it was found more than once. I mean, my argument is finding any at all is a bit of a shocker because that was a, most people engineer the CDR3, that's what they think they're doing. Um, and you know, but we found them and it wasn't just one or two, we found a lot of them and several of them we found multiple times. I can't remember how many, but several of them we found in lots of data sets. So they're clearly a normal H3. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean, right. Lots of people just have that H3 in their repertoire. It's floating around. It's there yeah, for whatever reason. Okay.
1: Yeah. I find that really interesting because one of the themes that, you know, we like to keep going back to is the idea of how do we leverage these public data sets, repertoire data sets uh, to understand drivers of disease, right? The antibody response and then deconvolute the antigen. And then, so then the question is, are there public, you know, uh, BCRs and TCRs that are disease relevant, um, and and so it suggests that at least for your work that you know even from the engineering perspective it's converging on nature.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean that that and just thinking about that kind of public repertoire stuff. One of the things, other things we've looked at is um, doing large scale modeling, so structural modeling of a lot of the repertoire sets we have in OAS. Now obviously we can't model every sequence. I haven't modeled two and a half billion sequences, but we've, we've modeled very large numbers of them to try and say, all right, even if I can't see sequence overlaps, because people have done those studies, do you have sequence overlaps between different humans? And the answer is almost none. And the answer to that question is, well, I expect that because if I've only got a sample of a million from each human or less, and they've all got 10 to the 10, the overlap you expect is very low. So then we did the, but do we have similar structural shapes between different repertoires? And we found that the answer to that was very clearly yes. So even if we, and this is to me is a kind of, wasn't a completely expected result, but kind of follows through from the general way protein structure works, that actually the convergence might not be as easy as we've got the same sequence. The convergence is if you have a very similar structure with similar, similar residues pointing out, it can do the same thing. So I think there is convergence in those repertoires, um, but we can see it at a structural level, but we might not be able to see it at, you know, sequence level because we can't sequence deep enough. You know, if I could actually see the 10 to the 10 in each human, maybe I would start to be able to understand how this works completely.
1: Sorry, I still have so many questions. Another follow-up to that. (laughs) (laughs) Is that that off off of the predicted structure or is that actual co-crystal structures of...
2: No, that, that all has okay. to be predicted structures. Yeah, You've got no idea the, the, the just, date. Just making sure. But
1: yes, very. Yeah. that's that's very exciting. So,
2: yeah. And I mean, and of course, that comes with a caveat that, of course, the predicted structures could be wrong. So I could be, it could just be a freak of the, you know, the methods. I don't think it, we try to demonstrate that we don't think that's the case, but it's hard to be completely certain mm-hmm. about that. But I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's the case that that's, that's what's driving that, those right. numbers there.
0: So not only do we start with hearing a little bit about your background, we also like to ask our guests, so what do you think the future will bring in terms of B cell receptors, especially for clinical or, or purely diagnostic purposes? So what do you think the future will bring?
2: Uh, I always think this is the most dangerous question in the world to answer because you're bound to get it wrong um, if you go too far ahead. And if you don't go anywhere, then what was the point in trying? It's absolutely clear that um the power of, you know, come on, TCR mimetics. So they're kind of these, they're going to be very powerful in terms of like diagnostics, even if they they may not be medicines. I think they'll be powerful medicines as well. But I think the the trend within all of this is this the data and the increasing volumes of data are allowing us to become much more predictive about how we do everything. Um, I guess something that's really dear to my heart is to move the whole field when we're thinking in the clinical world from the phrase antibody discovery to antibody design. And I think we are moving that way. And I really want to see that. And alongside that, I think we're getting a deeper and deeper understanding of how these things work and what they actually do and why they're important. So to me, it's that kind of movement towards being able to design, not discover. Don't go fishing for these things but actually design them from the ground up. And that's a real combination of um, experiment and computation. That's about being able to automate processes. It's about a very different way of thinking about how we do everything. But I I just see it as this inevitable rush that's hitting towards us, and we should all be going, wow, that would be so cool,
0: and be part of making that happen. Could you also imagine... Um... Uh, engineering uh, uh, T cell receptors, not just not just antibodies, yeah,
2: and I think that's would be you know it's sort of obvious to me that that's part of what will happen you know when we were talking at the beginning, we were talking about that you know why don't you just do the soluble TCRs and i'm I don't actually think that that's necessarily a bad choice. it has different downsides from trying to do a TCR mimetic for these kinds of things, so I would really hope that will be part of it, and I guess I go back to the the Lego analogy. First, Lego that's easiest for me to think about because we have so much data is the antibody Lego, best place for data currently from where I'm sitting. But we're getting data in the TCR Lego, new Lego, go and build it. It might be more like Meccano, I don't know. But you know, that kind of thing as we build through, and you know, you can think about that for nanobodies as well, and all of these different things. But to me, it's kind of learn the Lego sets, be able to design these things, and the it will completely change the way we think about doing clinical development for these. It will be amazing the the speed and the kind of
0: accuracy and specificity that we should be able to achieve by doing that. Wonderful. Others were absolutely excellent. Uh, we will return in one month's time with more thoughts about clinical use of air sequencing. This podcast is edited by Abdul Assist of the comedy podcast about norm. Thank you for listening to.
1: This brings us to the end of the 12th episode of On Air, the podcast of the air community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website, antibodysociety.org, to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at onair at air hyphencommunity.org or tweet us using the hashtag onair that's with two r's the contact information is also in the show notes below